It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you know what time it is? It's supernatural story time, and if you're easily scared, and even if you're not, there's only one thing left to do, just turn off the lights, because these are stories that you listen to only in the dark. Encounters with the Unknown, Volume 5, Story 1. This is a story about what I think was a man in black, but I'm not really sure. One day, I was alone up in a clear cut on a dead-end road with about a hundred rounds of rifle ammo I needed to empty so I could hand-load it. I noticed this guy walking down the hill above me, down the only road out, and he didn't belong. I was just under 30, I think. He seemed to be about 50, 55 years old, black but thinning hair, slacks, dress shoes, sports shirt, and a blue windbreaker. His hair appeared to be damp as if from a shower, not sweating. He appeared to have a small handgun in a black nylon holster, occasionally showing under his jacket tail. I remember he had a command presence, like trained military or police. Someone used to giving orders. He kept trying to maneuver me out from behind my truck as if to expose me to something. From his lack of readiness, ability to deploy his own gun, I think there was a shooter up in the brush out of sight. I think I was in someone's rifle scope. We talked a bit. Nothing happened. His story was that he'd heard me shooting from his place and thought I might be the guys who had the dope patch at the bottom of the clear cut confiscated a week or two earlier. He was going to surprise them. He didn't seem prepared to surprise armed dope growers to me. There were no power lines in the right directions and no houses where someone dressed as he was could have come from without looking a lot more haggard than he was. There was some lie of some sort in his story. I think he was either DEA out of Eugene or he was a hitman for a cartel coming to make an example of the growers who lost their crop. I don't know which, but I know I was in a really dangerous situation. Probably not from him, but from whoever was up in the bushes that I couldn't see. Or he was just plain crazy. I had friends in law enforcement around Eugene at the time, and nobody recognized the description. I'll never know, I guess, but it still creeps me out a bit. Story number two. We had about a 180-acre field below our house, mostly out of sight around the corner behind a timbered ridge. A couple of times a week I'd grab my old Colt 38 and mosey down two miles to visit our nearest neighbor, who were sort of elderly. One was an old gal whose husband had died when they were building their retirement house, so she chose to live out their shared dream alone. 
The other was a couple across the road from her who knew me since I was three weeks old. I'll go yarn with the old gal and go and help the couple in their yard pick berries, that sort of thing. Then go home in time for dinner. One day, I was walking home across the field. The dirt track that followed the fence splitting the field was right at the sun's shadow line as the sun went behind the hill. As I walked along, I noticed there were birds singing, but all a couple of hundred yards away. I was in the center of a patch of strange silence. About halfway through the length of the field, a grassy ridge comes down through the timber and joins it. There used to be a homestead there. I used to go sit on that ridge and shoot ground squirrels out on the flat where I was walking that day. I just happened to glance up there and see a nice buck still in the velvet looking down at me. We were about 175 yards apart. He was elevated maybe 20 feet. It was mostly flat to where he was. Then the hill went up pretty steep. On that steep part, a major hiking trail followed the contour of the hill. So I'm walking slow, wondering about the silence and watching the buck. All of a sudden, that guy took off like hell was on his tail, stretched out and racing for the trees. A uh, what? Then I saw something. Or maybe I should say I didn't see something. That baffles me to this day. The grass in the field I was in was mostly waist to shoulder height because there was no livestock on it that year. There was a patch of that grass being smashed down like there was a 30-foot diameter invisible beach ball rolling along. It was smashed down flat at the center. It popped back up after the invisible thing had passed. That spot of flattening grass took off on a beeline towards that deer like it was at an intercept course, like a fast predator. Like watching a cheetah close on a gazelle on the nature shows. It was a race. Deer trying to get to the timber before whatever it was caught it. I'm not sure how it turned out. The deer hit the tree line, but I couldn't tell if the invisible thing continued into the trees or stopped after it got under him, but out of the grass where it wasn't leaving a track. I don't know what I saw. I can't explain that. I just know I got the H-E double toothpicks out of there and went home. I sort of think whatever it was, I was its target till the deer got involved. I sure wish I knew what it was. It could have been anything except a 30-foot beach ball, right? Story number three. One of my interests is relocating abandoned pack trails back in the hills. Roads make them obsolete for freighting, but they are still good ways to get around on foot without being seen. Also, cool access to hunting areas nobody remembers and good ways to pack out game with less effort than just bailing cross-country through the pucker weeds. One I wanted to find goes from Marielle, a town along the Rogue River in southwest Oregon, up Mule Creek, past some old mine sites, up to Panther Ridge, which separates the Rogue from Coquille Rivers, then a short distance west on the ridge to Hanging Rock, where there used to be a lookout tower which overlooked that part of the Rogue Canyon. I located a hand-drawn map in a book and talked to an old guy who'd been one of the last freight packers to use the trail before the road was built, making the trail obsolete. I thought I had it dialed in. First trip was sort of uneventful. My buddy Pat and I, both still in high school at the time, took off from the upper end. My folks dropped us off by the road and we hiked down a dirt two-track to Old Red Mine, where we thought the actual trail began. We looked around for a couple of hours, couldn't find it, and despite it being November, had to boonie crash down the creek bed a mile and a half, wading and jumping off waterfalls, till we hit the pack trail near the mines in the lower canyon. We took it as a challenge we had to solve. Pat and his nephew made one attempt at it while I was unavailable. 
I got my turn a couple of years later when he was off in China. There's a trail the whole length of Panther Ridge, so I had my folks drop me off at the West End. I hiked the whole trail, went by Hanging Rock, and walked the two and a half miles down the steep road to Old Red Mine for a total of about 14 miles that day. It was still afternoonish, but I was tired and done walking. Picture the mine. Standing in the creek looking upstream, the access road comes steeply down from behind you on your left. In other words, it trends upstream but downhill from the ridge line to the mine. There's no bridge, just loose head-sized rocks in the creek, but enough you can rock hop and keep your feet dry. Across the creek on the right is the mine itself. No shaft, but tailings as if they'd mined away a small bridge. There's a flat, and on a shelf hanging ten feet above the creek is miner's shack. I rolled up my sleeping bag, made dinner, walked around a little bit, then climbed into my bag. It was maybe 7.30. I was down in the shade, but the sun was still bright on the ridge above me. I don't think I was there long before I heard rocks roll across the creek in the mining tailings. That happens. Didn't give it much thought. Then I heard rocks roll below that little flat as if something were going down the bank into the creek bed. I heard rocks roll and water splash in the creek. Then something started up the bank on my side of the creek. It sounded like it passed 30 to 50 feet downstream from me. I rolled over to look just in time to see the back half of whatever it was leaving the road I was lying in and going into the brush. All I saw from about the back rib on back, no idea what the front looked like. What I saw was obviously four-legged, a stubby tail maybe a foot long, just hair covered, no tuft at the end. It was a stiff-looking tail, not flexible. It didn't have a paunch or low-hanging belly, but that part of that body was still at least 18 inches thick, maybe more, bulk-wise bigger than the adult tiger I saw at the zoo. The hair was short and sort of cat-like, but unlike a cougar's hair, which is dusty brown, this was more of a butterscotch color, and the rear knees bent the wrong way. From where I was, they appeared to have the hinge pointing forward, not backwards. I still don't know what the critter was. It was big, 300 plus pounds for sure, maybe twice that. It's nothing that belongs there. I don't know if it was an escaped zoo animal, something normal but deformed by a bad injury or something weirder. Well, I about crapped my sleeping bag. There I was with over 20 miles of walking to do to get home. Flashlight batteries for about four hours, night falling. This thing in the brush with me apparently circling what to do. Within a few second seconds, I grabbed my glasses, stuffed my feet into my boots without socks, never bothered to tie them, stuffed my junk into the top of my pack without actually putting anything away, scooped the pack up in my arms, and rock hopped across the creek. Priorities changed. I didn't care about no trespassing, and I didn't care about hazardous chemical signs. I entered the miner's shack, unlocked, lucky me, set my pack down, closed the door, and pushed everything I could find against the door to block it. The shack was two rooms inside with a short dividing wall that pointed at the center of the outside door. In one room there was a wood frame about two and a half feet by six and a half feet horizontal with a heavy rubber sheet-like inner tube material tacked across it. The miner's mattress? I spent the night sitting on that mattress with my back against the back wall which was hung over the creek so nothing could get to the wall from outside. Forty maglite in one hand, three fifty-seven in the other, waiting on the edge of 
sanity for whatever might happen. Several times in the night, I heard gravel crunch outside, but nothing ever came up on the shack's porch or tried the windows or door. By daylight, I choked down a granola bar and had my pack packed. As soon as I could see the ground at my feet and my pistol sights, I bailed. Screw looking for the trail. I repeated our previous path right down the creek bed, off the same waterfalls, etc., etc. I haven't been back. I know where the trail is now. We were in the wrong fork of the creek. There are USFS trail signs. I can't quite get my nerve together to try that one again. Next story. It was early one morning around 4 a.m. in late September in the Smoky Mountains in northwestern North Carolina. I was bow hunting for white-tailed deer. I was about 17 years old. I had uh, gone to the mountains with one of my friends I went to high school with at the time because his family owned land about four miles down the road from the land I hunted on. So we thought it would be easy enough for both of us to hunt and spend the weekend camping out. He likes to get in his stand super early, like an hour and a half before daylight. I wasn't raised like that, so I was always in the stand about 30 to 45 minutes before sunrise, so when he told me he was going to drop me off at 4 a.m., I thought he was crazy, but I was like, okay, buddy, whatever you say. I was dropped off on a rarely used, somewhat abandoned old highway at the end of the driveway at the bottom of the mountain. It was cold, the ground was frosted, and a somewhat thick fog was creeping out of the dip at the base of the mountain. I started walking up the driveway. All I had was my compound bow, five-inch blade, and a mini mag light. My stand was about a four-mile walk from the end of the driveway. From the road with a creek running along the property border, then a field that runs about 200 yards to the base of the mixed timber where the driveway starts to wind up mountain. My great aunt and uncle used to live way out at the end of the driveway in an old house and they lived there for about 70 years with no power or running water. Real mountain people, they are dead and gone so the property was abandoned and has been for several years. I walked the length of the rutted and washed out driveway across the field and then jumped the cattle gate to start up into the dark forest up the mountain. The driveway was cut into the mountain so it was like a slope that flattened out into the road the down into the valley. I was walking to my stand like I had done many times before, up and up and up the driveway. This place is about 10 miles from any civilization, except for one house about a mile away. As I walked, I walked softly and quietly with my maglite pointed at the ground and with my hand cupped around it so as not to spook any deer that may be bedded down up or down the hill from me. I heard something down to my right in the valley and I didn't think anything of it. I was just hoping it wasn't a deer I had spooked up, so I kept walking trying to be quieter. Walked about another two minutes and I heard it again, this time a little louder, so I stopped and listened to see if I could hear anything else. I heard some more slight rustling and I thought to myself, Am I still about another mile and a half from the stand? And if I spook the deer then, it's too late, so I wanted to shine down the road and see if I could see anything. I shot my little mag light mini down there and, and I'd seen something incredible. It was six or seven sets of eyes. They were moving around and would look at the light intermittently, so it was hard to count exactly how many. At first I thought it was a herd of deer. I was kind of I don't know, mad that I had spooked them, 
I just kept on walking, still very softly. It was around 5 a.m. by this time. I had been taking my time, and like I said, I was trying to be quiet. I heard more noise down the valley to my right. I shined the light again. Starting to get nervous by this time, being in the dark and having a big imagination to begin with. This time the eyes were a little bit closer down at the base of the valley, about 40 yards from where I was. This time I could barely make out enough detail to see that it wasn't a herd of deer, but what looked like a pack of wolves. My heart started pounding and I tried to control my fear, but I didn't have a firearm, just a bow and a knife. I notched an arrow and carried my mag light in my non-drawing hand so that I could shine the light at whatever I may have to shoot at, God forbid. I intensely quickened my pace to almost a run. I was really sweating now despite the cool weather. I never looked back. I just kept going all the way to my stand and climbed up as quickly as possible. Now, I wasn't 100% sure on what I had seen, but what I could make of it, I was being stalked by a pack of wolves. I didn't even know there were wolves in the area at all. When I got back home, I told my uncle who hunts the area all the time what had happened, and he told me I was lucky and that it probably was a pack of wolves because some people in North Carolina had been re-releasing wild wolves in the air trying to repopulate the wolf population. What made it even more creepy was he said that his friend that hunts the same stand I hunted out of told him that not a week earlier he was hunting and right before it got dark one evening he swore he saw a wolf. Next story. My family uh, used to have a fishing lodge. They lived in a cabin adjacent to the main lodge building. There was a second smaller cabin our seasonal hired help lived in during the busy season. It was empty in the winter. When I was 13 or 14, I began staying in it in the winter, so my sisters, folks, and I had just a little more elbow room. The window by the cabin door overlooked the back porch of the lodge, where the garbage cans were set and where we fed our cats and dogs. That being the case, that's where the bears, raccoons, skunks, etc. would show up. Part of the fun of being in that cabin was being the official pest blaster. I generally leave the curtain open so I didn't have to move anything and alert the barmans I was getting ready to ventilate them. I took to sleeping with a Winchester 92 in a 38 under a blanket beside me and a cult single-action army in the same caliber under my second pillow. In the middle of the night one night, I woke with a start, scared. I could feel eyes on me. I didn't think. I just acted. I reached under the pillow, grabbed the colt, and thumbed the hammer as I rolled over. I wasn't lined up, but as soon as I could see the window at all, I could see the silhouette of a head. Someone was looking in at me. When the muzzle swung into the light from outside, whoever it was dropped. Damn good thing for them. The 180 grain soft point out of that gun would go through that wall like a thrown brick through one-ply toilet paper. The nearest neighbor at the time were two miles away. None of my family would fess up to peeking in my window. There's no through for transient to be going. I have no idea who that was. Now, another story about that cabin had to do with my grandma. She lived in there. Her folks had built the lodge. And I remember my great-grandma my great-grandpa died when I was 13 or 14. And he was there when I got my first year, which was pretty special. Anyway, the doorknobs locked didn't work, so they put a padlock hasp on the inside, and she locked the door by putting a carriage bolt through the hasp. Her mom, my great-grandma, was the original dingbat airhead. Good gal, just really scatterbrained. Blonde, before that meant anything. 
so I'd inherited some guns and ammo from them, mostly in 20 round boxes. I was studying up to figure out what the heck I had. Good times to be 13 or 14 year old kid with a pile of guns. I guess there never is a bad time for that. One night, maybe the same winter as I had the face looking in the window, I locked up and had gone back to bed. Middle of the night, there was a presence in the room. You know, as a kid, how it feels when your mom comes in to check on you in the dark. You know you're not alone, but it's safe and comfortable, so you don't really truly wake up. I had one of those. Thought I dreamt it, because I had, after all. Dropped the carriage bolt through the house, but nobody could get in without tearing the door off the hinges. There was merely no way of unlocking it without a key. When I got up, all my boxes of ammo were organized. Not by caliber, like a gun person would do, but by size and color. There sure wasn't anyone else in there with me. I don't think I did it in my sleep, but it was sure done. And the sum of the detail points to great-grandma. It's a thing she'd have done, the way she'd have done it, if she were alive. Next story. It was early fall. I was 18 and had just graduated high school the previous May. I spent the entire summer living in the back of a van, touring the Pacific Northwest with my little three-piece rock band and generally failing to live up to both the expectations and the reputation of my big and very proper family. I didn't have a real job. I didn't have my own place. I didn't have plans to go on a two-year Mormon mission like every male in my family had done for five generations before me, and I hadn't enrolled at Brigham Young University, the family school, either. Yeah, I was a loser especially by my family standards. And I'm sure I had been the subject of many formal and informal family councils over the summer. I'm sure it was one of those councils that had inspired my oldest brother-in-law. I'm the youngest of six kids, and there is a 20-plus year difference between my oldest sister and myself. To call me out of the clear blue and offer me a job at his company located just outside of Denver. After a short discussion... And after coming to the realization that my band, as it was constituted, wasn't going to be signed anytime soon, why are good bases so hard to find? I accepted the job and found myself on a flight to Denver the next morning. I was a little suspicious to see my brother-in-law's jacked-up suburban filled to the roof with all kinds of gear waiting for me at the curb. I was even more suspicious when he hopped on the I-25 and headed south, instead of hitting the I-70 and going west towards his house. We were nearly 20 miles south of Denver when he revealed that we were on our way to the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado to help him investigate some strange phenomena that had recently been documented there. Apparently, my new job was to accompany him on a trip to investigate cattle mutilations and other loony toony stuff in the bloody middle nowhere Colorado. Yep, trippy. A few hours later, we had made our way into the San Luis and to a little town called Crestone, where we hooked up with a guy named Christopher O'Brien. Christopher had been doing research on a book that he would later publish called The Mysterious Valley. He shared stories and showed us photographs of literally dozens of cattle and other animal mutilations that he had documented. They spanned almost 50 years. He showed us pictures of very strange local Native American rock art depicting what looked like alien beings descending from round objects as well. He also told us about locations where people had been seeing strange lights and black helicopters with increasing regularity. I would be lying if I said that I wasn't incredibly creeped out as we left Christopher's house. From there, we made our way to a place called the Baca Ranch, where we unloaded the mountain of gear that my brother-in-law had crammed into a suburban. 
As we unpacked, I realized just how serious he was about catching whatever he thought we might see on tape. In addition to buying a brand new generator, an expedition tent, sleeping bags, camp stoves, etc., he had purchased all kinds of video and night vision equipment. He had a Gen 3 Starlight monocular scope, a pair of high-powered Gen 3 binoculars, a thermal vision scope, and a brand new and compatible video camera. He even had a high-powered green laser with a range of several miles, all cutting-edge stuff in the early 1990s. We operated from that location for the better part of four days. We slept during the day and took turns keeping watch at night and saw nothing even remotely strange, unless you count watching a couple of husky teenage girls making out in the backseat of a Geo Metro Strange. On the fourth night, we decided to be a little bit more proactive and drive around the valley, hoping to see something as we drove. About midnight, we turned off the main highway and onto a flat straight road that led to Great Sand Dunes National Monument. A few miles down the road, we saw bright white light in the distance that we assumed was an oncoming car or motorcycle. We continued driving down the road a few more miles and it occurred to me that the light didn't appear to be getting any closer. I mentioned this to my brother-in-law and he said that he'd noticed the same thing. He drove another two or three miles and again, it didn't seem to be getting any closer. I hypothesized that the light was a reflection of our own headlights, that our own high beams were bouncing off the still warm asphalt a few miles down the road in front of us, like a mirage. This would explain the consistent distance of the light in front of us. To test my theory, my brother-in-law pulled off the deserted highway and turned off his headlights. No dice, the light was still there. Next, theorized that it was a car heading in the same direction as we were and that we were just looking at a tail light with a busted out cover, which is why it appeared white instead of red. To test the theory, we decided to remain stationary and see if the light appeared to move away from us. After about five minutes, it became clear that it wasn't a vehicle moving in the opposite direction. The light was just as bright and still appeared to be only about a mile or so down the road in front of us. As we were sitting there, my brother-in-law busted out the night vision binoculars and green laser. Using the binoculars, he flashed the laser at the light. He did this three different times. On the third attempt, the light flashed us back. The light was so bright it temporarily blinded us. I saw a little black spot on the back of my retina where it appeared and it started moving towards us at insane speeds. In the time that we were able to turn around and get pointed in the opposite direction, the thing had closed to within a hundred yards or so. My brother-in-law topped out the Suburban as we tried to shake whatever was following us. It followed us for a couple of miles then blinked out. We pulled over, caught our breath and theorized about what we had just seen. We waited for about ten minutes to see if whatever it was would show up again. As we sat there, I pulled out the night vision binocular that could also see in the IR spectrum and pointed it in the direction we had just come. I think I might have wet myself when I saw the object sitting about 200 yards away, visible only in the IR spectrum. I gave the monocular to my brother-in-law and he used a green laser to signal it again and again it lit up and moved closer. At that point my brother-in-law just put the hammer down. We made for the town of Alamosa and didn't look back. It must have blinked out again at some point because it wasn't behind us when we pulled onto the main highway. The next day we went back out to see if any of the residents that lived off the sand dunes road had seen anything. Nobody had seen the light that we had seen, but without prompting told us about white orbs that regularly flew down the main sand dunes road towards the other side of the valley. One guy said, it's like they're pretending to be trucks, hoping nobody sees them. 
They talked to an old ranch hand that described seeing white orbs and how, before the days of ranch trucks, he and his friend would go out on the range and chase them around on horseback. They would follow them around, and if they got too close, the orbs would just blink out. Then, when they stopped looking for them and started heading in the other direction, the orbs would light back up and follow them back to the ranch house. I have no explanation for what these things are. I've heard them called will-o'-wisps, among other things. When I got home, I started doing research about them and discovered that people all over the world see these things. But beyond that, I'm still at a loss to what we saw. Next story. Over 20 years ago, I married the lady that somehow managed to put up with me to this day. We went to the Smokies for our honeymoon and rented a large, very old wood frame farmhouse somewhere in the general vicinity of Townsend. They claimed that the place could comfortably sleep up to 20 people, and I believe it. It had two full floors, a small basement, and the attic had been converted into a bedroom. The two of us had this place to ourselves, and we thoroughly explored it during the day. My wife wouldn't stay long in the attic and said that something felt wrong up there. I figured that it was just the narrow, dark, creaking staircase going up to the attic. The stairwell was so dark that even in daylight you couldn't see the door at the top if looking up from the second floor. At night the house seemed to come alive with noises. Creaking, popping, groaning wood sounds went on all night. At about 2.30 a.m. my wife was still laying there wide awake and making it impossible for me to get to sleep. So I got up, grabbed a flashlight, and started trying to ease her fears by walking in each room, and everything was cool until I came to the stairwell leading up to the attic. Big bad me suddenly had the hair standing straight up on my arms and neck. There were noises coming from the attic that I can't explain. More than just wood creaking, but an almost inaudible growling sound, non-stop. Sinister sounding, to say the least. Now, we had this house rented for three days and nights, so you know that I had to check it out. I left my wife standing at the bottom of the stairs, pleading me not to go up there. I stopped at the top and listened. And even putting my hand on the door for a moment, all the noises ceased now, which really made it even harder to open the door. I'm not easily scared, but I was breathing heavy and sweating when I finally got up the nerve to open that door. What happened next absolutely stunned and terrified me. I slowly turned the old brass knob and began pushing the door open, but as the door reached the point about a quarter of the way open, an incredible force hit the door from the attic side and slammed it shut in my face, nearly knocking me backward down the stairs and knocking the flashlight from my hand, setting it bouncing down the stairs. My wife let loose a scream that scared me worse than the door slamming, not good since I was still struggling to keep from falling backward. Naturally, I fell forward into the door, sending it flying open to reveal the darkest darkness that I have ever seen. I didn't wet my pants, but it was touch and go for a second. While I was trying to get my eyes to focus on anything in that darkness, my wife had come up the stairs and grabbed my foot, briefly stopping my heart, and started pulling on it. The flashlight still worked and I grabbed it from her, quickly scanning the small attic. Maybe it was my imagination, but the light seemed to struggle to penetrate the darkness, and it was awfully cold up there. I found the light switch, turned it on, and looked in every nook and cranny of that attic. I found nothing, and much to my disappointment, there was no way for an animal to get in from the outside. All humor aside, you have to admit this would have been hilarious to see on video. Whatever slammed that door on me was powerful. I'd never experienced anything like that in my life and haven't since to this day. We called the landlord the next morning and asked to be relocated, but he said with a chuckle that he couldn't until the next day, 
We stayed there again that night, but stayed only on the ground floor and the front porch. We both got drunk, I might add. The noises returned that night, but no more exploring for me. I'm still convinced that there was something evil residing in that attic. But when I fell through the door and it slammed back against the wall, I hoped that I scared it as bad as it did my wife and I. I doubt it. But the thought helps to ease the shame of being terrified in front of my new wife. <laughs>